Space to repent. We have a God who gives us space to repent because he's patient, because he's long-suffering, and he may be waiting on you, beloved, and he's given you an opportunity right now because he's not willing that any should perish. Maybe God has you sitting here right now or listening somewhere in the area right now for a reason. This is your time, perhaps, and the Lord's not slack. He is coming back. But he is extremely gracious and he is extending grace and he may be waiting on you right now. Would you respond before Christ comes back? Would you respond while there is yet time? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn back to 2 Peter in the third chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3. I've got a little granddaughter. And whenever she wants me to pick her up, she doesn't say a word. She just holds out her arms like that. And there are times when I want to pick her up, and I don't say a word. I just hold out my arms like that. And it's just kind of an unspoken language between us. But it says it all. When, when somebody reaches out for somebody, that says something. Well, I'd like to talk to you today about this. Is God reaching out to you? Is God reaching out to you? And I take it from our text here in 2 Peter chapter 3, just one verse, verse 9. The Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now note those words, the Lord's not willing that any should perish. I find God reaching out to us because he does not want any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. We'll be talking about that, but let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity to be in your house once again. We pray that you bless this special time of the week. We pray that you bless your word as it's open. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts in a special way, and we'll thank you for it. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a series here in First and Second Peter. We're in the very last chapter now, and we come to a very, very famous verse, verse 9. But it's a verse that quite often people take out a context, or at least they don't use the context. And the context really is that there were some scoffers at that time. But Peter's point is there's always been scoffers. There will be scoffers in the last days. Do you believe we're living in the last days? I believe we're living in the last days. And Peter addresses how there's going to be these scoffers saying, where's the promise of the second coming of Christ? I mean, everything remains as it's always been. The sun rose this morning like it did yesterday and like it will tomorrow. And, and, and so so it's business as usual, and that's kind of the attitude of our society today. And folks, sadly, when we push God out of the picture and we don't realize Christ is coming back, it can lead to bad behavior, some bad behavior. Well, I know it's been 2,000 years since Christ went back to heaven. I know it's been 2,000 years since he gave us the promise of his second coming. But you know that God works in 2,000-year increments, and we've already talked about that. In fact, we've talked about a number of signs present even currently, that point to the fact Christ is coming back soon. We've, we see some real signs in nature. We see some things like knowledge exploding in this information age in which we live. We see travel exploding 
in the hectic day and age in which we live. And we also with it find a very stressful society that the Bible speaks of in the last days where men's hearts will be failing them for fear, anxiety, or stress. And today, heart disease is the biggest killer worldwide and, and second to none. We also find that in the last days, morals would be the pits, and certainly they are. We have a society now living below the scum line. And we also find that back in 1948, Israel received its land back after 1900 years, and Christ said something about the rebutting of the fig tree and, and pictured it with the rebirth of Israel and the generation that sees that take place will see the second coming of Christ. Now, there are a lot of other things we could talk about prevalent to the last days, and viruses are one of them, believe it or not, and we see one after the other. But the point is, our time is winding down. We know it's winding down. And the lay of the second coming of Christ really isn't grounds for mocking, it's grounds for rejoicing because if Christ had not delayed his coming, I would have not gotten saved. In fact, if Christ had come back a week or two weeks before you got saved, where would you be now? And so you can be thankful that he did delay it until at least you could get saved, but there's no guarantee of this evening coming around like it normally does. There's no guarantee of the sun rising tomorrow like it always does. There's no guarantee of anything. And really, the delay of the second coming of Christ, it only shows us that God is gracious and that God is patient. God is waiting for one more to get saved. It doesn't negate the fact Christ is coming back. And you say, well, it's been a long time in coming. Well, a glacier moves slowly. And yet our Agassiz Valley here was formed by a slow-moving glacier after the flood, but it moves nonetheless. And God is never tardy, but he is patient. He's very patient. And so in our verse here, we see several things about God reaching out to us in the time that we have left. And the first one is what I call a sure promise or the sure promises. Note in verse number nine again, Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. It mentions here the sure promises of God. Now, promises are important, aren't they? But promises, sadly, are taken very lightly in the day and age in which we live. And we see peace treaties and promises of that type being broken continually. In fact, back in the days of World War II, we find a Hitler making a promise to Russia that they would not attack them because Hitler did not want a two-front war. And yet, he turns around and he breaks that promise because there are some 2,000 peace treaties that have been made over the centuries. And hardly the ink is dry on the signature of the, the signees until we find those promises broken. I remember as a kid seeing the old Disney movie in the 60s called Mary Poppins. Some of you saw Mary Poppins. And she made a statement during the movie. She said, promises, promises. They're like pie crusts, easily made and easily broken. And how true that is. Pie crust promises, that's what we have in the day and age in which we live. But folks, we have a God who when he makes a promise, he keeps the promises. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen. All the promises in him, that is Christ, are yea, meaning yes, you can trust him. And in him are amen, so be it. There are over 7,500 promises in the Bible from God, our creator, if you can imagine that. And they go way back to Genesis. No sooner had Adam and Eve sinned and brought a curse upon this fallen race in which we live today, but God makes a promise for a Savior to come. 
And he says this in Genesis 3.15 to the devil. He says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. That's a death blow. And thou shall bruise his heel. And there we find really a hint of the crucifixion of Christ when the nails would go through the, the heel of Christ piercing his flesh and we find that God makes a promise to send the Messiah right off the bat. But as time marches on, we see 2,000 years go by and we see God's eye in a special man by the name of Abraham. And with Abraham, he's going to raise up a special people, a chosen people, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew. They're still with us yet to this day. And we find that God picks Abraham because he can trust him with such a privilege. And Abraham and his obedience comes through this test that God gives to him. And in Genesis 22, God says to him, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Folks, here's another hint. Here's another promise of the Messiah. Through you, Abraham, through the Jewish lineage, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And certainly we've been blessed by the Messiah, have we not? But time marched on. And we find that Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son by the name of, of Jacob. And Jacob now has gotten old, and he's on his deathbed, and he's making uh, predictions and prophecies to his sons. And he has this to say in Genesis 49. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Another reference to the Lord Jesus Christ coming. But he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And he narrows it down from the 12 sons to the one by the name of Judah and says the Messiah is going to come through Judah. And that's a promise. And guess what? It came to pass. Some time marches on again. And now we're fast forwarding to about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And we find the prophet Isaiah has something to say about this birth. In Isaiah 7, 14, he said, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know what that means? It means God with us. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus Christ came to this earth. The creator of the globe came to the globe he created. God was with us and he was born of a virgin. Just like God promised. When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. Well, that day came to pass. It's now 0 AD, if you want to call it that. And Jesus Christ is coming on the scene. And Zechariah, the prophet and the priest, says this in Luke 168. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath raised up an horn of salvation for us, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began to perform the mercy. Notice, promise to our fathers. These promises go way back to Genesis, but you can take them to the bank. Friend, when God makes a promise, it will come to pass. And we see these sure promises. There was a, a poor criminal years ago in an eastern monarch who was ushered in before the king for stealing bread when he was hungry. And he was trembling before the, the king, but it, nonetheless, he was going to be beheaded, and he knew it. And the, the king said, do you have any last request? And, and this poor beggar, he, he said, I'm, I'm thirsty. I haven't had a drink of water for a long time. And, and so they brought him in a glass of water. And there he was looking around and trembling and trying to drink the water and scared for his life. And all of a sudden, that eastern monarch smiled wryly. And he said, don't be afraid. 
You don't have anything to fear. You're safe until you're done drinking your water. And the beggar realized what the king had said, and he dropped the glass to the ground. It shattered in a thousand pieces, and he looked back at the king, and he said, I, I claim the royal promise. And the king realized what he had said. You're safe until you drink the water. The water could never be drank. And he had won his life back fair and square because there is a king who had to keep his promise. How much more the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when he makes a promise and he says, I'm coming back, it's a sure promise. When he promises it to us, eternal life, it's a sure promise. And we read in 1 John 2, 25, and this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. God never forgets his promises. There was an elderly Christian lady she lay on her deathbed dying. She had devoted much of her Christian life to memorizing glorious portions of the Bible and especially the promises of the Word of God. She knew a bunch of the promises of God, but her mind was going and she realized it was going. And there she was on her deathbed and her pastor came to visit her. And she said, Pastor, I've spent my whole life claiming the promises of God. She said, as I die, I, I can scarcely think of any of the promises of God as I die. I don't have any promises to claim. I've forgotten the promises. And the pastor wisely looked at this dear lady and he said, Ma'am, do you think God has forgotten his promises? And boy, this smile just lit up her face and she realized, of course not. She said, I can die on that. I can go out into eternity with that. God never forgets his promises. There are a number of promises in the Bible, folks. There's a number of covenants that God has made with us. And there's the Adamic covenant that he made with Adam. There's the Noahic covenant that he made with Noah. There's the covenant he made with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with his church. And that's why we're here today. And these are sure promises from God himself, promises that we can trust and promises that we can take to the bank. There was a uh, preacher by the name of Fisher back in the 1500s who was hauled into the Tower of London. I don't know if you've ever been to the Tower of London in London. I've been to it a, a few times. It's a scary place. It goes back over a thousand years. And many a person was executed there. And that's back when they were killing preachers. And they executed Pastor Fisher into the Tower of London. And they put him in his cell. And he looked through the bars across at that platform there where he knew he'd be beheaded the next day. And he said, oh God, I can't think of a promise from you right now that I need. Would you give me one? And, and he reached for his New Testament and he opened it. And guess where it fell open? John 16, 32. Jesus was talking. He said, behold, the hour is now come that ye, and he's talking to his disciples, shall leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. I'm not alone because the Father is with me. He said, that's it. He looked up to heaven. He said, thank you. And he went to the scaffold the next day with that promise from God that he was not alone. Now, folks, you don't have to wait until you die to claim the promises of God. They are, they are sure promises, and, and you can take them to the bank. There was a Native American Indian years ago who wandered into a Western settlement, half-starved, and, and asking for bread, and, and, and a charitable person gave him a loaf, and as he was putting it in his mouth as fast as he could, somebody noticed this parchment around his neck on a, on a chain, a little sack there, and, and they asked him about it. What, what is that? Some kind of a, a good luck charm? And, and 
the, the Native American opened it and he said, no, he, he said, this is something I've been carrying for years. And he, he pulled out this old greasy piece of paper and on it was a promise from the federal government, the U.S. government, of a lifelong pension because of his service, fighting in the army right alongside of George Washington, signed by George Washington himself. Here he is carrying around this pension, this promise of whatever he needs for the rest of his life. He has it, and he didn't realize what he had. What a picture of Christian people. We have all these sure promises from God, and we're not claiming them. And so we see Peter mention that. He says, the Lord is not slack, concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. We see the sure promises. But secondly, we see the sovereign patience. The verse goes on, and it says, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. We see that God is long-suffering. You say, well, what's that mean? It means he suffers long. You say, what does that mean? It means he's patient. It means he puts up with a lot for a long time. Patience, patience. I think the greatest illustration I've heard of patience was recently. It, it was a, a miner, an ore miner, who was in a certain county, I think it was Kern County, uh, California. And this ore miner had this vein that was rich, but he couldn't get it out into the waiting world. And, and so he worked on a tunnel through solid granite from 1906 to 1938, 32 years, he chiseled through solid granite, 2,000 feet, and because he was a poor man, he couldn't buy all the modern stuff. In fact, he just had this old jackhammer he used, and he had a lantern, he had a wheelbarrow, and for 32 years, he went out there and he chiseled away at that rock, gaining whatever distance he could by the quarter inch for 32 years until finally he broke through the other side and he could get his product to market. That's patience, folks. That's patience. You know, we, we lack patience, though, don't we? I think I do. I'll just admit it. I think most of us do. And, and we want patience, but, but we want it now. You've heard the old cliche, as it were. I want it now. Well, we find a number of examples in the Bible of characters who lacked patience. I mentioned Moses a moment ago. Moses hit the rock, didn't he? Because he lost his patience with the people of Israel. We found the uh, apostles lose their patience with that woman, that Syrophoenician woman, saying, get her out of here, she's bothering us. We find James and John lose their patience with the Samaritans saying, let's call down fire on their head. What a thing for a Christian to say, huh? We find others like Martha lose her patience with Mary, and we could go through the Bible and it reads like who's who when it comes to patience in people who lack it. But folks, our God is long-suffering. The Bible says so here. He, he's long-suffering to us, word, and not willing that any should perish. And so he has these promises he's made, and with the promises, you can couple that to his patience. You've got patience, and you have promises. You know, there are over 300 promises in the Bible of the first coming of Jesus Christ. And he came, and he fulfilled every single one of them. Do you know that there's over 1,800 promises in the Bible of the second coming of Christ? And beloved, he, he's coming back to fulfill all of them. But he's giving us now time to come to Christ. And I'm thankful I've come to Christ, but maybe somebody's sitting here or somebody's listening in the area or somebody's listening in the world who has not been born again yet. I want you to know without stutter or stammer, God and his patience has given you time to come to him. In fact, the Bible calls it space to repent. 
Interesting expression, isn't it? Space to repent. Over in the book of the Revelation, there's, a, there's an ungodly woman that's doing some ungodly stuff. And Christ addresses the church she's in there at Thyatira. And he says this, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. Space to repent. We have a God who gives us space to repent because he's patient, because he's long-suffering. You know that word long-suffering there in the Greek, it means large in suffering, large in patience, large in waiting on people. And he may be waiting on you, beloved, and he's given you an opportunity right now because he's not willing that any should perish. It's not that he died for the whole world, but that he died for you. And if you're the only person who ever graced the top of this planet, he'd have died for you. He loves you. He wants you to be saved, and he's waiting on you because he's not willing that any should perish. That's called mercy. In fact, if I could sum it up in one word, it's mercy. It's mercy. Now, sadly, most people will perish. You say, no, yes, most people will perish. Folks, that's a fact. That is a fact. Now, that's the opposite of how most people think. They think pretty much everybody's going to heaven. Well, maybe a few like Hitler, maybe uh, Mussolini, maybe uh, the drug cartel folks, maybe the mafia, and, and evil people, the rapists and the murderers, that crowd probably will miss. But, but pretty much everybody else is going to heaven, right, Pastor? No, wrong. I'm sorry to say, Christ himself told us that's not true. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus said, Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Notice those adjectives, wide, broad. It leadeth to destruction, many. It's talking about the road to hell and Christ is telling us here, it's broad and it's wide and, and many are on it. In the very next verse, he flips the coin over, says, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Notice the description, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Years ago, long time ago, I had a, a pastor in North Fargo take me to task on something I said. I don't know if he heard it online. I don't know if he got it in some literature we put out as a church here. But he said, you made a claim that most people are going to hell. He said, I don't find that in the Bible. I'm thinking to myself, we just read it, did we not? When Christ talks about the road to hell and he uses words like many and broad and wide, and then he flips the coin over and he speaks to heaven and he says it's narrow and it's few. It's pretty obvious most people are not going to heaven, unfortunately. You say, well, that's not right. You say, well, that can't be. I, I, I don't think that's just. I, I demand justice. I'm a good person. Well, the Bible has this to say. There's none righteous, no, not one. No, not one. Just in the same way God's not willing that any should perish, not one. There's not one righteous person on this earth. No, not one. There's no exception to that. You say, but I try to be a good person. God's put a good person test in the Bible called the Ten Commandments. And if you take it honestly, you flunk it miserably. The first one says, don't put any other gods before the one true God. If you ever put anything before God, making money, buying stuff, a relationship, even sports, entertainment, music, something trivial. You know, people make gods out of a lot of things. And that commandment speaks of a priority. 
and you've broken it. You put things ahead of God. The second one speaks of making this God of your imagination, this graven image God. Boy, people are famous for doing that. And it's the darling sin of humanity. Well, to me, God is like this. To me, God understands. To me, God wouldn't send anyone to hell. I mean, I mean God will give us a break. To me, to me, to me. You've made your own God up. He's not the God of the Bible. He's the mush God. That's our society. They've invented this God that suits them. And they've broken the second command. Third commandment <clears throat> talks about taking the name of the Lord in vain. Have you ever done that? Well, you've broken the third commandment. The fourth commandment speaks of honoring the Lord's day. Have you always done that? The fifth commandment speaks of honoring your parents. Have you always obeyed your parents? I mean completely, with a good attitude, right away? I don't think so. And the sixth commandment talks about not murdering somebody. You say, I've never done that one. If you've even hated somebody, been bitter at somebody, mad towards somebody, it's murder of the heart. The seventh commandment speaks of not committing adultery. Have you ever done that? You say, well, no, that's one I haven't done. If you've even lusted after the opposite sex, it's adultery of the heart, and you've broken the seventh commandment. The eighth says, thou shalt not steal. You ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? Anything small, even as a kid? Something out of the cookie jar? Or maybe as you got older and you got a job, you, you took too long of a coffee break or a lunch break, now you're stealing the boss's time. You're a thief. The ninth commandment talks about bearing false witness, meaning lying. Have you ever told a lie? If you denied it, you'd be lying. And the tenth commandment says, thou shalt not covet. You ever wanted something you didn't have, something someone else had? Have you ever been discontented with what you, you do have? I mean, that's, they're all forms of covetousness. And the bottom line is, you flunk miserably the good person test. And what's written behind me is true. There's none righteous, no, not one. You say, but, but, but justice. No, you don't want justice. You know what you want? You want mercy. That's what you want. Mercy. Because you're condemned without mercy. The psalmist said to God, for thy mercy is great above the heavens. Wow. It's so great. It's higher than the heavens. God's mercy. In Psalm 86, he also said, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. On March 5th, 1981, I called upon him in repentance and faith, and I experienced that plenteous mercy. I realized I could be forgiven for my sin, but it starts with realizing your need, and that's where most people fall flat. They don't realize their need. They don't realize their sinful condition, and they don't realize just who they're dealing with. They do not realize who God is. We read this in Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. Do you realize who you're dealing with? The God of this universe? Boy, we live in a world where people need a healthy respect for God and a healthy fear for God. You know, I grew up with parents. My, my mom and dad, I had a healthy respect for them. I had a healthy fear for, for, for my dad. That kept me in line. That kept me within some boundaries that I'm glad I did not go outside of growing up. But maybe it's time that you get a healthy fear of God and really realize who God is. You know, in, in Micah 7, 18, 
It says, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. We have a God who delights in showing mercy toward them that fear him. He delighteth in mercy, delights in being merciful. You know, Queen Victoria was only 18 years of age when she ascended to the throne. And she thought, well, this is going to be fun. But on her first day of duty, she was brought in some royal papers that needed signing. And so she was signing away and signing away and signing away. And finally, she came to a death warrant of somebody who was to be executed, to be beheaded for some crime he had done. And she went to sign. She went, well, wait a minute. She said, "Uh, do I have to be privy to this? And her chamberlain said, you have to sign it if he is to be executed. Unless you choose your royal prerogative to show mercy. She said, oh, tell me about that. And so he explained to her that you can pardon a criminal. And she said, what was the crime done? And it was something trivial. And she said, Chamberlain, I have chosen to display my royal prerogative and show mercy. And she did. And she pardoned the man fully at that time. God delights in mercy. God has shown his mercy toward us on Calvary's cross He sent his only begotten son to the cruel hands of those who tormented him, mocked him, tortured him, and drove nails through him and hung him up between heaven and earth to shed blood on a a rugged cross for our sin because he delights in mercy. Now, what have you done with that sacrifice? That's really the question. A lot of people have a head knowledge of of the crucifixion, but it's, it's just that. They've never done anything with it. They've never receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. They look at the cross and they say, well, that's nice, that's fine, whatever. But let me tell you something. That cross and that sacrifice shows the seriousness of sin and the fact that you need a Savior. Have you made Christ your Lord and Savior? Have you had a time in your life when you realized you were lost and on the road to hell, condemned by your sin and deserving of hell, and in your hopeless condition, you turned to Christ and called upon him in repentance and faith and made him your Lord and Savior and were born again the Bible way. I did that over 40 years ago and I found God's mercy. You know, the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. God's mercy is what saves us. Not your good works, not your church membership, but God's mercy. God's not willing that any should perish because he is merciful. You know, shortly after Lee had surrendered to Grant and the Civil War had ended, Lincoln stood on the balcony of the White House with a bunch of constituents in front of him and and he told them the war is over and and this is the way it looks and so on and so forth. And Senator Harlan, he, he from the floor hollered out, well, what should we do with the rebels? And all of a sudden the crowd went, hang them, hang them. And little Tad Lincoln, only 11 years of age, was standing beside his tall dad, and he tugged at the trousers of his dad, and he looked up with tears in his eyes, and he said, no, no, Dad, don't hang him. He he said, hang on to him. And the face of Lincoln broadened with a smile, and he turned back to that crowd, and he said, Tad has it. He, He said, let's hang on to him. Tad had learned something from his dad about mercy. We have a merciful God. And it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saves us. Have you been saved by God's mercy? Well, we've talked about the sure promises. 
We've talked about the sovereign patience. Finally, let's talk about the sinner's penitence. Penitence. Notice in verse number 9 again. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. There's the sure promises. But his long-suffering to usward. There's the sovereign patience. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's the sinner's penitence. Now, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on repentance. I'll say that again. The Bible puts a, a lot of emphasis on repentance. We find the expression over 58 times in the New Testament alone. We find that word used by Jesus Christ himself. In Luke 13, he said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so to place our faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior and to trust that sacrifice and that, that blood that he shed as the atonement for our sin is important. But you know, there's something with faith and it's often lacking and it's repentance. These are Siamese twins, repentance and faith. These are twin sisters, repentance and faith. In fact, Christ mentioned them together in Mark 1. Repent ye and believe. That's faith. Believe the gospel. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is a turning. It, it, think of it as a turning from sin, a turning from a false religion, a turning from dead works, a turn, turning from a relationship that maybe uh, we shouldn't be in. And, you know, we have modern Christianity, and it has eliminated repentance. In fact, modern Christianity ignores repentance. Modern Christianity disdains and, and, and has contempt for repentance. It dislikes repentance. And as a result, we have a number of people saying, well, I, I want my cake and eat it too. I want to be a born-again Christian. I want to go to heaven when I die. But I want to hang on to this world. I want to hang on to its sin. I want to hang on to its vice and its carnality. And so they'll make a little profession and pray a little prayer. And there's no change. Their life is no different afterwards. You say, why? No repentance. What you get without repentance is a synthetic salvation. And that's why Paul said to church members in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobate? And that's a fancy way of saying if Christ really isn't dwelling in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, if you're not truly born again spiritually, you're lost, you're a reprobate because you only have half the gospel. It's repentance and faith. And we find together in Acts 21 or 2021, Paul spoke of testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance. True repentance starts with agreeing with God about what we are. If you just took the uh, good person test and flunked it, it's about time you agree with God about the condition you're in and acknowledge the fact you're a sinner. You know, David said, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And so you agree with God, I'm a sinner. You admit, yes, I am a sinner. And secondly, there's a remorse over it. It's not some flippant thing you, you giggle about. The Bible says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world is like, man, I got caught, sorrow. It's so flippant. It's so temporal. But godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. 
You know, in Psalm 38, the psalmist said, I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. And so there's this sorrow that leads to repentance. And true repentance involves a turning. I said at the outset, a turning to God. In Isaiah 55 and in verse 7, God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy on him. True repentance involves a turning to God. It involves a change of mind. The Greek word for repentance is metanoio. Meta means change. Noio means thinking or knowledge. And together, repentance is a change of mind about our sin. A turning in the mind that results in a change in our lives. In Ezekiel 14, thus saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from your idols. And those idols could be a number of things. But we find here repentance equaling turning, a metanoio. And in the New Testament, Paul commended those folks at Thessalonica. He said, yeah, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there's a turning. There's a change of mind that takes place. For me, it, it was about a false religion. It really was. That was my final hurdle. That was my, my final roadblock. Was I willing to change my mind about following the wrong thing? It could be work salvation. It could be baptismal regeneration. It could be trying to work your way to heaven by uh, doing good deeds. You know, there are a lot of people and they're doing a lot of different things trying to work their way to heaven. But the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. You will never work your way to heaven by your works because it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. Now, Back here again, notice in verse number nine. <clears throat> the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We find here God reaching out to us. We find here the heart of God. We read this in Ezekiel 33. God says, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. We have a God who is waiting for you right now to come to repentance. Years ago, the governor of Texas was named Ness. Governor Ness went to the state penitentiary and uh, he, he gave this talk to the inmates there in the pen. And when he got done, he said, now gentlemen, he said, I want you to know that if any of you want to wait around and, and talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, I'd be happy to do that. And, and I promise you one thing, whatever you tell me will be kept totally confidential. Well, a large group of men uh, waited around, and one at a time, they came in, they sat across the desk from Governor Ness, and one at a time, they said, well, Governor, you know, I, I really shouldn't be in here. I got a bum rap. This is an injustice, and, and, and really, I, it, it wasn't my fault, and I'm not guilty of what I, 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 was, I was accused of, and okay, thank you, and that man went on, he heard the next one, and same thing, I'm, I'm not guilty, I was framed, I shouldn't be in here, and, and, and one at a time, all of them went by, until near the end, there was one man who came by, and he, he sat down, he trembled, he began to weep, and he said, Governor, he said, I'm, a, I'm so ashamed I'm in here. 
And he said, I deserve to be in here. I'm guilty of, of what they condemn me of. He, he said, I just wanted to tell you one-on-one -on -one how sore I am for committing a crime like I did in the great state of Texas. And he said, I, I'm sorry, I just want to tell you as governor. And he moved on. Well, anyway, what the governor had not told any of them is he, he planned on pardoning one man. And guess what? It, it wasn't any of those who came through saying, I got framed, I got a bum rap, I'm not guilty. It was the one man who came clean. What a lesson here, folks. We have a God who says, just repent, just come clean, just admit you are what you are and agree with me. God is looking for that attitude to confess, to come clean. Kind of like the thief on the cross, remember that? You know, two thieves, one on each side of Christ. And they're both railing on him at first and chiding with him and, until one has a change of heart and looks across at this man on the cross in the middle and realizes this must be the Messiah. And realizes what I, I learned at my mother's knee or what I learned down at the synagogue as a little boy is true about him. Here he is suffering for my sins. And he said, Lord, remember me this day when you come into your kingdom. And Christ turned to him and said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That thief died and went to heaven because he repented. He admitted to the other thief, we deserve to be on this cross. We, we, we get the just reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing. Repentance, that's what it is. Just coming clean. You know, there's amnesty for those who will repent. But God's amnesty, this great amnesty, doesn't last forever. Doesn't last forever. And, and that's the point of this verse here. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise. Christ is coming back, but he is long-suffering to us, word, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, we read in Luke 15, 7, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Maybe God has you sitting here right now or listening somewhere in the area right now for a reason. This is your time, perhaps. And the Lord's not slack. He, he is coming back, but he is extremely gracious and he is extending grace. And he may be waiting on you right now. Respond to that mercy. Respond to that mercy. You know, there was... A, a 19-year-old man by the name of L. Johnson years ago down in Kansas who with another man robbed a bank and got away with it. They got away with a lot of money. And they thought, oh, somebody's going to find out. Later on, the other guy was killed in a car accident with another man. And the bank teller mistakenly identified those two as the men who robbed the bank. And here's L. Johnson going, I'm off scot-free. They'll never catch me now. But you know, he married a gal and he pretended to be a Christian because she was a Christian gal. And all the while, he just never confided in her and admitted what he had done in robbing that bank. And one day, he found a, a gospel track called God's Simple Plan of Salvation. Some of you have seen that track. And Al Johnson read that track and he was gloriously converted, knowing in the process he needed to make some things right. But as he called upon the Lord in repentance and faith, knew he was coming clean. And after he got saved, he confessed to his wife. After he got saved, he went down to the local authorities and he confessed that he was part of that bank robbery. Well, the uh, state of Kansas, in hearing the situation and seeing the years he had lived the way he had, granted him amnesty, forgave him. He said, I'm still going to pay back the debt to the bank. And he did. But he went on to own a service station and, and be a, 
a loving father of three admiring boys and live a godly life because he was shown mercy. Why? He repented. He came clean. And joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. You know that God offers salvation to everybody. And this verse here, this glorious verse before says he's not willing that any should perish. In fact, take this verse and insert your name personally in this verse in three particular places. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to insert your name. Not willing that insert your name should perish, but that insert your name should come to repentance. This verse applies to you. You have a glorious promise from a God who is reaching out to you, who at the very end of the Bible can't help himself. Before the Holy Writ closes and the canon is done, he makes one last invitation. Christ says, let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. That whosoever could be you, that any could be you, Maybe the reason you're here today is God is reaching out to you. Would you respond before Christ comes back? Would you respond while there is yet time? You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.